right, I'm very excited to have Mr. Bryant Usher on the show. And Bryant is a regenerative farmer uh, near the Sunshine Coast on, in Queensland. And um, Bryant, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Absolutely. Good. Can we, can we start with a bit of background about you and your journey uh, as a farmer? Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, look, <laughs> my life started uh, on the land. Uh, my mum and dad obviously were rural people as well. Started out way out in the uh, out in the outback, Longridge, uh, as sheep people. But um, back when we were kids, mum and dad bought this farm here, which we're now uh, operating on in 69 1969 and we came here for our schooling and everything else i then went on to school you know boarding school and also agricultural college so the gatton agricultural college where i did uh, animal husbandry plus um, ag uh, two two associate diploma courses uh once i'd finished there did a little bit of european travel um when i got back i went back into the land working for other people and I then sort of went through, worked a little bit for mum and dad on a big property, cattle property, didn't really suit at the time, made a change and began by buying my own country at Chinchilla. So Chinchilla was sort of a base for a long time for me and and my wife at the time. And I then transitioned into more agriculture. So I was doing farming. And it was at that stage that we we're getting the no-till style farming, the you know the true chemical farming. And I was on board with that because that was the thing at the time and I actually became a ground rig spray operator. So I was going out every day and killing something in order to have a, my living and slowly buy, you know, buy my land with my efforts as a, as a ground rig spray operator. Um and then the big change came and paradigm change came in a big way when I went to a course uh, run by RCS, so it's the Resource Consulting Services. And they seriously, in one week of, of doing the Grazing for Profit course, I learned so many things that changed my life effectively from there on in. And we progressively made change accordingly to our learnings. Um, and I, I suppose the biggest thing of that was to understand or make, you know, actually appreciate what we'd been doing was really the wrong path. The RCS um, at that point were really focusing more about our grazing and how to uh, improve our land as we were doing our grazing. So the time control uh, principles were the main part and we effectively incorporated that and developed it into the properties we currently had. So I've been doing it since the mid-2000s, effectively, the, re- the regenerative-style farming. Then, of course, I, I unfortunately had a, a marriage uh, split and um, life changed, and so my now-wife Susie and I came together. We were mainly just educating kids in Toowoomba but then made a decision to come to this farm here at Kinkin in the Hinter Valley a hinterland of Noosa, effectively, um, and effectively did a complete rebuild of this farm where we put a water infrastructure in, we put fences in, and we began to graze so that we could improve the land. Um, and we're now that was the end of 2018 that we came here, and so we're a few years in now, 
effectively four years in. And, you know, very happy with how we've gone with change and effectively now getting really good, you know, we can see the health building again. Um, the concern we had here was that for years, uh, everybody, as you know, including my father, had gone out every day to spray and kill something, and that was industry standard. You might say there was there's always weeds here in this environment, and it was encouraged by the department and even council to go out and spray every day and kill weeds, you know, concerned weeds or concerning weeds. So we came here with a completely different uh, thought pattern that we wanted to be regenerative. We wanted to be clean and healthy. You know, all those uh, parts really had to be at the forefront of everything we, we did. So we've nearly gone cold turkey, you might say, on chemical, which has also created a major change in finding the right animal for this environment. When we when we did start here, we started by buying other people's animals as a trade um, trade animal, and trying to grow that for you know beef production. But we came unstuck with the tick burden that is in this this country here, and we lost animals through effectively just getting too many ticks on them, and couldn't you know treat them quick enough to get them better and 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 survive them. So that's when we really made a major change into a different uh, breed of animal, and that's the Nguni, which is a South African breed. We we came across it through good friends who I'd met through the RCS system, and they were running these animals up at uh, Mackay, or in, inland from Mackay. Similar environment, muggy, hot, grows a lot of grass, not necessarily high protein feeds here in the, in the you know, higher rainfall zones, but um, they had tick burden the same as us. Found out that they didn't need to treat them in order to, you know, run them in that environment. So I was really interested and immediately went and bought uh, our first pure Nguni bull and some Brahmin cows with Nguni calves at foot, and that was a start into the Nguni breed. So that was right back in you know, 2019, and we got started with that in, that breed. Yeah, I don't know whether that's a, a quick enough <laughs> startup. Yeah, no, that that's great. Thank you. So, yeah. to give the listener an idea a bit more about what is a conventional agricultural approach, um, as a bit of a, a background, you mentioned spraying, and if you have weeds on your pasture, you were using synthetic chemicals made in a factory to spray onto these these pastures. Um, wh- yeah. What else about that convention conventional agricultural approach? Um, are most people doing that you've dispensed with now? Okay, so what what we found out, and this is you know obviously through the the, the learnings of, of RCS, was in traditional and conventional uh, agriculture, we go out every day to kill what's in the paddock, effectively. But we've learned, and, and and I don't know how we didn't see it, but we've learned in truth that the health of the of of land and health of soil comes from growing plants, something with a uh, a living uh, root system, which is getting energy from the sun through photosynthesis, and and the biology in the soil is activated by the, that process of of a plant growing and photosynthesis that's happening all the time. Without it, you get dead soil. It's as simple as that. So, the, the really strange part of of trying to get our head around how traditional and ag- uh, the agricultural system works 
is we are either ploughing everything out of the country or we we're spraying it out of the country. So we were just killing health, if you want to, if you want to see it like that, and killing our nutrient um, availability from our soils. So when I went out every day and sprayed someone's paddock and my own as well, I was just taking us backwards. We're going back. And every time now when I drive past the paddock and I see all the plants are dead, I, I just look at it and think, well, back at ground zero, you've got to start again, guys. Um, there's no health there. There's no ability for uh, the soil to really bounce if there's no green growing plants. So it's a huge paradigm shift to try and get your head around the fact that in order to have healthy soil, you have to have growing, you know, growing plants. History and enough people that have done it to prove that it's possible to farm with green growing plants and continue to be, even if you want to be uh, grain growers uh, rather than just graziers, it's possible to do it in a system where you're not always going out and killing the plants. Every day, I'll say it again, we, we uh, effectively went out every day and killed what was growing in the, in the plant. We either ploughed it or we, or we sprayed it in a traditional mm. farming system. And yeah. what we've learned is that, in, in truth, the only way to have health in our soils is to have green growing plants. And mm. we need to operate with green growing plants. And the system that was traditional and still is out there, but, you know, there's a huge amount of people still doing exactly the same thing. Uh, every day going out and making it ground zero, taking it back to bare soil. And I, I do have an example of where I was growing a, a, a forage sorghum crop in one paddock and literally over the fence was a paddock which was in so-called fallow, which was all, you know, sprayed out, sitting there bare. And I was, um, we had a rain event and things were looking all right. And I went out and I probed my paddock with the sorghum in it and I could just drop the probe, which is a moisture probe, all the way in, like two, two and a half feet straight down. I walked across to the fallow paddock, which had been fallowing for about three or four months, and I could only get it about four inches in before it went hard. And it just made me understand, you know, a huge paradigm shift that the only way we're going to get moisture to go into the ground is to have plants there that help it move through the soil. Um, so yeah, there's there's so much to get your head around in, in the uh, shift from thinking that we can store moisture in a bare paddock better than we can store it in a in a paddock that's got green growing plants. Yeah, it, it's yeah, a and major thing. The, yeah, the, and the the thing that's important or more relevant to consumers now nowadays is the effect of pesticides and herbicides and other industrial chemicals on health and the recognition that spraying these chemicals on pasture and then having animals graze on that is that that those chemicals are passed through the food that that they eat so so what type of chemicals just give an idea of what type of chemicals you, you were spraying well, our, our biggest one, probably 90% of what I went out and sprayed was Roundup, which is the uh, base of uh, glyphosate. And the concern is, and, and maybe it's not proven, I don't know, I think it has been in America, but the glyphosate kills bio, you know, bacteria and biology effectively. And if we then consume that, yes, it won't kill us as a chemical, but it'll probably kill us long term by killing our, our, our gut um, microbiome and our gut action. 
And so my, you know, my concern at the time was zero because we'd been told emphatically that this is a safe chemical. Um, but as I moved along on my journey, there's been things that shown me completely different. It's it, Number one was they reckoned it wasn't a residual chemical and I had, I had a fellow come in and he dumped some uh, diluted Roundup onto my ground just near my fuel tank. That ground didn't grow a plant for six years. So to tell me that it's got no residual, I just laugh in their face. It certainly does because it's killing the bio- biology of the soil. It just does. And so to yeah. see that, you can then start to think, right, oh, well, it can kill the biology in the soil. It's going to kill biology in us as well. So when we yeah. now go and use Roundup to spray out a, pa- a paddock, as in spray it out, dry it down is the way they do it. So they spray it in order to kill the plant, to dry it down and make it ready for harvest. Effectively, there's Roundup on the whole plant. So if there's grain to be harvested, there's Roundup on the grain. Now that Roundup, travels through the system whether it goes through an animal as a grain-fed animal or whether it goes through us as a a bread you know a flour product or something like that it's going through our system everywhere no matter which way you look sideways it's either in the meat system or it's in the in the um, cereal system so i'm very concerned that a lot of our ill health that that you guys as doctors are you know having to now deal with is coming from the fact that we've been chem- chemical farmers for, for a good while now and it's yeah. not healthy. Um, that's a fascinating point, Brian. And for the listener, the mechanism of action of glyphosate is it interferes with what's called the shikimate pathway, which is a, one of the bacterial synthesis pathways. The, the main uh, proponents of, of Roundup and glyphosate made the point that this is not occurring in a, in a, in animals and mammals and biological systems. But as Brian alluded to, this is a pathway that is used by our commensal gut flora. So ingestion of glyphosate is altering our microbiome. And I would suggest everyone, uh, check out the videos of Dr. Stephanie Seneff. And she describes how ingestion, repeated ingestion of glyphosate can shift the gut microbiome to more clostridium and other type of um, more pathogenic type of bacteria, which then have an effect of influencing health in, de- in a detrimental way. So, I mean, that's a that's an incredible anecdote as well that you mentioned that you were told that this is a non-residual chemical that it isn't bioaccumulated or bioresidual. But as you said, you you had diluted glyphosate on your ground for and nothing grew for six years. So, yep. give it give give people an idea of the the ubiquity of the use of this chemical because it's obviously just being used in your context on pa- pasture to kill weeds, but. But it's also ubiquitous in um, cereal and grain um, production as a crop desiccant, and and g- just give yeah. us a quick idea about about those use like, cases. Yeah, in the in the farming in the industrial farming model, it's used now on all paddocks because they bring it back to ground zero. They want to kill every weed to have it so that it starts fresh for the for the plant that they wish to plant in order to have a you know, a crop. Now, whether it be a cereal crop or a forage crop or a, or even a cotton crop, as in a, you know, so, you know, fiber crop, they're using glyphosate for all of it. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. They, they spray now over uh, the GM um, plants that have been designed to handle glyphosate being sprayed on it. So in every part of agriculture right now, I think glyphosate is probably the highest used chemical. 
the other ones they use are obviously uh, specially designed to hit um, particular insects or particular style of uh, weed so that they're what they call selective. I don't think they're any better. I think all of them are going to do some damage in our system somewhere. So, you know, if we take out all the insects out of our system, where does that break the cycle? Where does it break the environmental cycle if you take, you know, let's say you're aiming at one insect but you take out all of them, 100% of them. You know, we're just doing so much damage to our environment by constantly killing things. So on the other hand, if we allow things to grow and we continue to build health through our our, um, soil biology, we know that we can get a healthy system that sort of supports itself. Yes, we'll still have issues, and yes, it may not be quite as, uh, what do you call it, yield uh, strong. It'll be, you know, you'll yield well, but you won't necessarily yield as heavily as you might have if you took out all the competition. But on the other side of it, our input costs just fall out the door. You know, we can farm without input costs. That's what makes it more profitable. And I, and I was listening to your uh, interview with uh, Jacob Walkie, and I think probably the biggest point of that is we need to be profitable. In order to look after our land, we need to be profitable. We have to be able to do it and do it well and get paid to do it so that we can continue to do it well. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the the real paradigm shift that I'm hearing in terms of your your approach is that you're treating the ecosystem and the land holistically and not only blindly uh, treating it as uh, how many cows you can grow and then how much meat you can sell, but rather what is this? What is the moisture content in my soil? What is the microbial um, diversity and richness of my soil? How is that influencing how much grass I can grow and, and how, many, how many plants are growing? And then as a downstream effect of those healthy soils and those healthy pastures then the cattle and how how many cattle we can hold so i mean it's fascinating that this is a holistic whole kind of ecosystem approach and i really like to draw an analogy to, to human health which is just as agriculture is using uh glyphosate and other herbicides to really nuke the system and kind of use that as as their main uh approach so is mainstream medicine using medications pills to to treat the constant chronic disease and the consequences of of a um uh, an evolutionary inconsistent diet for humans so in both realms we're ignoring uh, the holistic picture of either human or the ecosystem um and in both cases you we're getting a very very sub suboptimal outcome for, for the majority of conventional practitioners so i mean that that's a that's a great background and so you you went from this uh more conventional approach and now you've learned and implemented these regenerative approaches so can you talk a a little bit more about um your particular property and and now you use no chemicals at all is that correct well i won't say no chemicals because i haven't gone organic as such i i I suppose you, you leave the door open to be able to uh operate on certain function if it's really necessary and and I've still got some animals on my farm here that can't operate in this environment. But, you know, there are our potty calves, a dairy cow, um, who is like a surrogate mother. So 
in order to allow them to live in this environment, yes, I still use, you know, the conventional way of keeping them alive in this environment. But we're moving and transitioning completely to these ingunis so that we don't have to do that, so that we can completely eliminate. So anything that's got inguni content now on this farm here has not been treated. It hasn't had an injection. It is completely clean of chemical. And like we said already, we've, we've pretty much gone cold turkey on treating anything in our pastures as well um, from chemical use. So we're now using a mulching technique. If we've got weed problems, we'll mulch them and allow the microbial, you know, part of the soil to benefit from putting that net back down on the soil. And look, we'll go forward in this high rainfall environment where we're constantly needing to do a little bit of maintenance and management in order to keep our grasses for our cattle to graze. But we are using our animals as a function of getting better grasses, stronger grasses, more root systems, a higher carbon content in our soil. And all that just leads, you know, from all the information that I've found out and listening to some really fabulous podcasts from American growers that have been doing it a bit longer than us, is that we are definitely on the right path to be able to do that. And once you get some strength and health in your soils, the plants are healthier, so they don't get diseased. And then once the you know, you've got healthy plants, that effectively transitions onto the animal that you're grazing on the system, which then transitions onto the, anim uh, the animals like ourselves that are eating that food effectively so if our garden is is healthy and we eat our uh, um, cattle that are healthy we should be healthier and, and i can probably d uh, tell you that i know that for sure i did get my you know the little bout of uh, prostate cancer myself and so i did a complete diet change and within doing that diet change i reduced the cancer I, you know, in the end, I had to have an operation. But at the time of starting out and going down a completely food healthy um, path, I was reducing the count, as you might say, the cancer count. So, you know, we do know that it is beneficial to eat healthy food for our bodies. That's for sure. And so our ethos is eat local, consume healthy, clean, green food. And uh, yeah, Jake Wilkie in my previous podcast had a, a similar statement um, and he had an interesting story about a woman whose uh, intolerance of beef and pork, which was in essentially likely to be chemical contaminants in conventionally raised beef and pork, was resolved once she started consuming uh, regeneratively raised, holistically managed um, beef and pork that he raised. And, and it's a story yeah. that we're hearing more and more uh, in anecdote form which is people's health issues um, are resolving once they get onto this high-quality high food. And it really points, um, as a doctor and a scientist, it points to this idea, well, these chemicals are likely to be contributing or component causes in the development of disease in the first place, such that when you remove oh, them, look, you know, the yeah. body's able to heal. Absolutely. I agree with you there. I mean... Mm. Why we haven't seen it sooner, I don't know. I think it's just we humans get very uh, focused on, on um, you know, what has been is what will be, and mm. it's very hard for us to change unless someone's shown us the path before or, you know, we get industry 
gets on board with a certain um, function and a certain way of doing things and then it, that's taught across the whole system. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it scares me that we haven't done it, but it, it enlightens me that we are doing it now and there's enough people starting to realise it needs to be done. Uh, I think within that uh, podcast you did with uh, Jacob, he, he mentioned that in order for it to continue, we need to have people support it pay the price that is needed to support it because, you know, we all do have costs of doing this and we have a cost to the to the produce that we that we grow. And if it's not paid, then you push the system down the cheap form. And the cheap form normally is not the healthy form. So we, we constantly make comment to the fact that if you want it, you need to support us and, and pay the price because we will do it. And anybody else that's on the same path wants to do it in order to make everything healthier and and i know yeah. for sure it does long term it does um, yeah it, it really makes it better yeah and and i think we need to in terms of promoting or changing consumer preferences and making people more aware of the value of this food is i think something like nutrient uh quality and nutrient density testing which is what joel salatin was has has mentioned about his pastured eggs that is going to be a really powerful way to help communicate and help educate people about why they should be buying or um, organic or, or regeneratively raised beef. Before yeah. before we change tax, I just want to get your opinion on why do you think the conventional approaches based on uh, spraying of chemicals and, and set stocking, why, why are they so entrenched and why are we so um, – why is there so much inertia um, in that approach? I was there. I was in that in that uh, system. And when I made changes, I made small changes in order to try and test it, whether it was going to work and whatnot. But it normally just comes down to uh, affordability. I mean, a farmer is not normally making huge amounts of money. They may seem from the outside looking in that they've got a huge amount of money. But most of the time, you're, you're doing it at a very low rate of return. So people chase yield. People chase, um, you know, Getting an outcome that pays the bank, sometimes that's, that's, you know, you're pushing to pay the bank, you might say. And it, it, it's hard to make change without a cost. So when I made the change, I made small changes initially and I got, and luckily, I got good results. I got the outcomes I thought I should have got, but it still had a price to pay. And so it's that price to pay that ch- makes people not change. So I, I regularly say to people, um, change normally comes with pain. So in order to have change, somewhere along the line, the pain has to hit. So sometimes people go broke because the input costs are huge. You know, and I had I had a failed year when we had uh, major floods and effectively it put me out of business because I couldn't catch up. You, you know, you have one good year in five, it's not enough to cover it. And then if you get the opposite where you literally can't do any of it, you're almost out the back door, you know, and, and that happens regularly. So for people to make change, it's got to, sometimes it takes pain. But generally if they're it just ticking does. along, yeah, and they are paying the bank, they say to you, well, why would I change? I'm doing all right, mm. you know. So yeah. it's got to come from a, like a, a personal or an understanding. And that's why I say RCS was the, the the integral part of my mindset change 
was to understand okay. there is a different way and there is a different mm. thinking that you can run with. And when I talk yeah. to farmers now, because I, I've been there and I was there, I quite happily look them in the eye and say, you can change. It's possible. It's possible to do it the other way. And I can give mm. them, you know, people to listen to or podcasts to listen to or people that have um, done it, proven it, and are doing really well out of it. So, Yeah, and, um, you know, behaviour change of our patients. Pe- people need to often hit rock bottom or they need to have a health scare something needs to go wrong before they change their lifestyle and change their diet. So, I mean, it's a consistent uh, factor in in human nature um, about our our desire and our ability to change. It's often dependent on something going wrong. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit now about this breed, um, the Nagoonies. And you mentioned that they're a South African breed and they're very pest resistant and they're able to thrive in more marginal country or in, in areas that have, have a high tick burden. So can you tell me, tell the listener and help the listener understand about these these cattle and how are they different to the most the conventional uh, English breeds or the, the Herefords and Angus that most people are eating? Okay, so I'm probably not 100% schooled up on all the different things of Nguni, but we certainly found out along the path is number one yes and the reason we chose them their parasite resistance is is super duper and it comes from a couple of things that's just part of their long term like thousands of years of being bred in in an environment that is super tough uh their skin um it's short hair it it, apparently their hair follicle can grow up to three hairs so it's obviously dense hair cover um, and they also can apparently excrete a an oil that w- if they get bitten, it skin will excrete an oil which uh, either just deters or even apparently can um, make a, a tick infertile. So they don't breed on from there. So if they get this excretion of an oil, they often will drop off, so they don't get them on at all, or it it stops them continuing to breed. So that's a fabulous thing about them. The fact that they can operate on low uh, quality feeds is something that obviously come from the fact that they've once again had thousands of years of operating in low quality feeds and their gut system has uh, adapted and changed to be able to do that. Uh, they tell us that it's probably a higher uh, nitrogen or urea sort of content within the gut that allows them to digest really poor quality foods. And so running them on this uh, little bit lesser uh, protein feeds here on the coast, I, I understand that they will do better than the likes of a Charolais or a, even a, Bra- a, a, a Brangus or you know, certainly Angus. Angus here don't really love it at all. They, they're a softer breed and they need higher protein feeds to operate well. So those two things, number one, they, they, you know, they excrete something that stops the parasite They've got close and dense hair, so that probably stops parasite, and they operate on a lower protein feed. Then you come along to the next really good benefit is they're highly fertile. So um, even though they're only a smaller animal, which for me suits, suits this country because it's quite hilly, is that they will have a calf every year. And, you know, they don't have to grow to 300-plus kilos to start having that calf. You know, you, I, I join around about 220 kilos and by the time they're 250 kilos they're going to be you know in calf 
So we can often have a calf on the ground when they're two-year-old and then they'll continue to carve every year thereafter. And some of the stories are that they'll do that for 20 years. So that, that in itself puts them ahead of most other commercial breeds. Not to say that we should get rid of other commercial breeds because, you know, certain breeds for certain country and I've chosen these because of my country. Then you get to the next beneficial part. They are highly fertile animals, generally prove to be um, better eating, you know, their, their meat is better to eat. They do marble on grass, you know, they will have some fat go through their, their um, meats um, while they're just grazing on grass. So they don't have to be pumped with uh, a higher protein feed in order to get that fat to um, go through their their meats. So it makes them, A, you know, tasty, B, tender, um, coming off grass. So, I mean, it has a huge... Uh, Alexander. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's phone going. Um, yeah, and I, I just... I suppose I love them because they've got a, a character as well. They're they're a uh, uh, intelligent animals. The way I describe them, they're intelligent. They're calm. If you treat them calmly, they're calm animals. They're intelligent and inquisitive, and you know they they come around me when I go out in the paddock and they look at me and talk to me. And yeah, so look, there's so many good parts about them. I, I really enjoy the Inguni from work, working with almost every other breed through my life because I was a trader. I used to buy other people's animals all the time. These animals are, are good and interesting and, and fabulous to have on the farm. So, mm. yeah, and they eat well, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can test, testify to the qual eating quality of, of the Nguni, having eaten your, your beef for the past six months, and it's just an amazing flavour, um, absolutely yeah delicious i uh, i remember taking a, an eastwell steak one of your steaks to a barbecue um one of the rumps and other other we had other rumps to compare and angus and um a wagyu and the color of the meat yours was just a deep deep red and the others almost looked pale and the, the the quality and the depth of flavor of the meat i mean it was there was no comparison so i mean the the there's this idea that and having talked about some more conventionally minded um, cattle people about the Nguni breed. There's this this idea that, oh, they're going to be uh, bad tasting. They eat, they're not going to be anywhere near as delicious as the Angus. Well, it's just simply not true. And uh, your, your product, I think, is is uh, is testament to that. Um, yeah. The well, other thing that I was... The, the, mm, sorry. No, go on. I, go I was going to say that the, uh, the Brahmin breed has probably given people that... Um, you know, concern, you might say, of, mm. of eating quality. So the Brahmin breed, as much as they're a fabulous animal in, in a harsh environment, they've never really been able to get them so they eat well. Um, mm. and, and so we come from the fact that we've got to get a change of mindset. Uh, you know, if they see something with a bit of a hump, they think it's a Brahmin and they think it won't eat well. Well, mm. the difference between an Nguni and a Brahmin is just, you know, chalk and cheese, because the Brahmins' hump alone is is a fat and reserve, you know, for their harsh times. The hump on an Inguni is more of a, a muscle fat, um, a position, and and it's nothing to do with them trying to survive a harsh environment. Uh, they've got other qualities that that help them do that. And so, yeah, sometimes it's another thing. I've never been afraid of colour, so 
an animal with colour is not a concern to me. But in in the commercial uh, beef industry, sometimes they're just really scared of colour. They think it might have come from the dairy side of animals, or or come from the Brahmin side, and you know, if it's not all black or if it's not all brown, they think it's not going to eat well. Well, I, uh, you and I can attest to the fact that they do eat well and and they have beautiful flavour coming off grass. So, And we've only really at this point either got the first cross or second cross in goonies. We're not even into the full-blooded in goonies yet. So, you know, the, the, the ability to do what they do comes through in the early crossing. It's really fabulous. Mm. Um, I've talked to um, Jake about this idea of this breed. It's like a, an apocalypse breed. It's a breed that doesn't need to be nurtured. It doesn't need to be handheld. Um, you don't need to get a vet in, you know, every month. It's it's such a, a an independent and robust animal that is surviving and and thriving with with minimal human input, and that that contrasts to some of these. Angus or the Hereford types that um, correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, but will often need pulling if the calf gets stuck in the in the mother's pelvis, um, and and other types of interventions. Is is that something you've noticed as well? Well, yeah, definitely. At this point in time, I can say that you know calving difficulty is not an issue. Uh, mm. They're very well known for having you know almost zero calving difficulty, and I already say that. Um, small calves hit the ground and are on, on their legs almost before the, the mother gets up off the ground. So they're adapted. They're a herd uh, animal, um, come from harsh environment where they have nasty predators. Uh, so, And I say to people that probably through time the culling of non-performers would have come from the fact that they were shepherded animals for many thousands of years. And so if, if a cow or a calf or a heifer or what, no, not calf, a heifer or a cow didn't calve, they probably ate that one, you know, and said, well, she didn't perform, didn't have a calf, so we'll eat that one. So they're taking out the non-performers out of the gene pool. So even though Australian gene pool is reasonably small, I think that the ones they brought here were particularly good, you know, um, uh, genes. And we've only got, I think there's three, Serious Nguni breeders here in Australia. Um, I'm now on board with it and probably going to continue to move through to doing uh, purebred animals. But there's not that many here yet, uh, and they're not known. As you just said, they're not known yet. But I'm, I'll be pushing to let people know how good they are. Even that first cross seems to show a lot of the really good traits coming through from the Nguni. So, you know, crossing them over a, an Angus, all of a sudden, they don't get ticks. Uh, so they're probably getting a bit of the best of both worlds, you might say. And yeah, I don't know how I can't say enough about them. I suppose I'm, I'm hooked, as you might say. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're doing all that we want and, and some. Yeah, yeah. And and from a consumer point of view, um, for for us as as people who are eating this beef. One, it tastes great. Two, we know it hasn't needed any tick therapy or, or any other kind of chemicals. Um, and three, obviously, because of your re- regenerative techniques, it's it's going to have be free of uh, herbicides and other kind of um, yeah. And and, uh, and something that I, I heard or read um, was that the fact that because if you can keep your grasses up, and let's say we're aiming at you know mid ankle or uh, not mid ankle, mid mid shin to knee height, 
you're getting your animals grazing habits up off the ground. And a lot of our, uh, our issues come from bacterial um, disease and, and that'll be down on the ground and in the soils. So if your animal's grazing higher up and in the leaf, fo- you know, leaf area of all your pastures, you're effectively eliminating any of those nasties, you know, like blackleg and the likes. They come from down in being soil-borne or tetanus, soil-borne. So I, you know, I see and think that if my pastures are in really good health, it helps the fact that I'm not exposing my animals to those nasties in the first place. So, and, you know, yes, I've taken a chance. It's a bit like going cold turkey on the, on the chemicals on the farm. I've gone cold turkey on the animal itself and let them take them chances and to, I'm three years in and haven't seen an issue I would hope that I'm only going to get better because my my pasture health and soil health is going to continue to build um, I've said a lot of people this this country here in the hinterland has probably got a bellyache from chemical for years they've been going out and spraying likes of groundsel or lantana or tobacco bush or cotton bush or even thistle and I, I just don't get it, you know, because uh, yes, they're a problem in, in a grazing environment, but they're actually really good for environmental health. You know, you're getting these plants that are bringing nutrients from a deeper depth because most of them are tap-rooted plants. A lot of them are annuals, so that's even more better because they grow up and fall down again. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's, yes, it's a paradigm shift to get away from chemical, but it's not, it's not hard it's possible yeah and in terms of uh, building your grasses up can you do you rotate how often do you rotate and what methods do you use to rotate your cattle okay so the the first thing we did obviously was to fence the farms and and put water systems in so that a they came out of the the natural water systems you know got out of the creek systems for their water so we've got troughs and you know a water system where they can drink out of a trough and then I set the fencing up so that um, every paddock has access to a trough. And currently we've got 27 paddocks and we're looking to go to 35 as a minimum in order to then have them go to a new paddock every day and get fresh pasture every day. And once they get like that, they're also getting a little bit better nutrient pasture when you've had recovery of over a month in, in this high-growth country it's you know it's close to a month of getting back to full health we can give them highly nutrient you know good clean pasture every time they move every afternoon we move them into a new pasture and they love it i mean they're looking for that move that's for sure they're they're saying yep we'll go to a new pasture and get clean green feed (laughs) and you see the smiles come on their faces that's for sure and again, that that's contrast with a set stocking approach where cows are left in a larger paddock for weeks, months at a time. Sometimes, Brian, and um, yeah, and don't. I mean, have, I, I yeah, I mean, I don't knock people that do uh, set stocking, you know, on on large areas because of just the management of the animal itself. But my experience has been that if you can fence your farm so that you can rotate and put everything in 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 one mob and do that. It's actually easier management. Um, you've only got one area to focus your, you know, your attention on, whether the fences are right or the water's right. Animals are in one, one herd. It's really very easy management. Like I probably only need to spend 15 to 20 minutes out in my paddock each day to manage that mob. Um, where 
if you have them set stock, yes, you can set it so that those animals have got the right paddock area. But the downside is they go and choose the nice plants all the time and effectively those nice plants get taken out of your system because they keep going and targeting them. You're not allowing those nice plants to recover. And that's the very first thing you see as soon as you change your system from set stock to uh, rotational grazing is you see recovery of plants that you hadn't seen for years before. And, and you know, it's, it's exciting to see those plants get back into the system. Um, some of the ones we saw here were green panic, which is a really palatable, succulent grass that grows most of the time under trees. It likes a shaded environment. It likes a high nutrient environment. So anywhere where there's been a cattle camp or, or a little bit of shade, green panic will be one of the plants that will come back into that system. And they love it. But if you don't allow rest, it won't be there. You know, so that's just one example. And legumes are another one that, that often get taken out of a system uh, where it's set stock and um, and they can't recover. They don't get time to recover in a set stock system. So, yes, you can have animals in a set stock system and, and then they look fabulous and they'll be healthy because they you know, haven't got too many of them or something like that. But at the end of the day, the environment's not liking it. And, and I've seen that now. I've done... I think this is my fourth property of development into a rotational system or a time control system. And each and every place has, has changed um, to, for the better for more plants in the system, higher biodiversity. You get, and it's probably something I don't go and do enough, but if you go and look closer into your system, you'll have more ants or more bugs. Um, not all bad. Most of them are good. And you'll have maybe more birds. You, you, you know, you'll just get more biodiversity just simply by doing that alone yeah it is important just... though I might, I might make the point it is important to measure so you don't overdo it in a in a rotational system so i actually have a program now on the computer but i used to do it in a in a physical grazing chart where i'd measure what my take is and i'd make sure that when the animals came out of a paddock i'd say to myself well they might have taken a bit too much so i can't keep grazing at that pressure so you have to adjust your numbers. But that, you know, that's just management. I think it's been said plenty of times that um, like a like a business doesn't fail because of the business, it fails because of management and, and it's the same in a, in a grazing environment. Yeah. We can see a system where you can rotate your cows regularly and, and they have access to fresh pasture and they're healthy or you can put them in a, a paddock and they're set stocked they grow, they graze close to the ground. They're being exposed to their own feces. They're being exposed to, um, to, uh, parasites. And then you have to drench them. So again, it's like the human health, people who have insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, they can continue to eat carbohydrates. Um, and we can give them, uh, all metformin. We can give them GLP-1 agonists. We can give them all these di diabetic medications and eventually insulin to control their blood sugar. Or we can remove the carbohydrates. And, you know, the, the system equilibrates and they heal themselves. So it's just, I'm, I'm very interested and I, I love this analogy that we're drawing between um, animal agriculture and human health and how interventionism is really leading us down a short-term path that's not in the best interests of, of, the, of the organism and isn't, isn't promoting health. So um, yeah. that, that's, that's so fascinating, Brian, and thank, thanks for sharing that. The next thing I want to talk about um, is a little bit about your approach to selling and and providing 
um, access to your beef. So you sell through the local farmer's market. Um, what's your experience with direct-to-consumer sales and can you compare that to the more traditional approach? Well, number one thing with our ethos from Eastwell Farms and, and our original business plan was to sell local to local because, you know, we know that food miles are also killing our, you know, our country, you might say, or our environment. So in order to do that, we, we decided, yes, we'd sell local. And in order to get known that we are doing that, we thought, well, the farmer's market is a good start. So, we, yes, we went to the uh, and have been going to the Noosa farmer's market in in Noosa and, and getting a bit of a profile uh, as being the, uh, you know, local suppliers of, of clean green beef and uh, yummy at that. <laughs> and we also do our mushrooms, uh, our gourmet mushrooms. And so in order to get known, we felt we had to have a presence in the public. Uh, as much as social media is a really good way of getting out there and getting known, um, we do do online sales. It, which is a little, you know, a little bit more restrictive, but it's not impossible. So uh, we we do deliveries for people um, if they buy over a hundred dollars worth of beef. So we don't think that's ridiculous. You know, a lot of people will come to the market and they'll spend forty or fifty dollars buying the meat they need for the week. But we say to them, look, you know, if you want to buy online, we can sell you a hundred dollars worth of beef and deliver it direct to your door because we're going down and doing mushroom deliveries anyway. Um, so we're, we're encouraging people to look online and buy from from online shop rather than, than relying on coming to the market. Our other area of selling some of our beef is through our, our local restaurants and our local uh, food uh, providers. Uh, we're really well connected with uh, Josh Smallwood at uh, Noosa Cartel. So he uses our beef in his ready-made meals. And he's a super chef. He's come from the high end of chefing. Uh, he was at Ricky's and, and still is at Ricky's, I think, some of the time. But he's a super chef. And he's now making pies with our beef. And, and people are loving the pie because it's all local produce. We're using uh, piggy in the middle uh, bacon. We're using Kenilworth cheese. We're using our own mushrooms. He, he selects and finds some uh, other fresh veg to go into those pies. So it's all about local. It's all about clean and green. And we want to have healthy food going to the consumer. So, yes, our cell is about the health. Our cell is the fact that what we produce is healthy food. We know it is. We've come from understanding uh, for our own bodies the necessity for healthy foods and uh, to get away from the, con con what do you call it, the traditional or the, the, the I mean, um, Coles middle aisles as they say <laughs> yeah. where it's all packaged yeah. and it's all processed and it's all got additives and you wouldn't know what's coming through from those additives you just yeah. you know we get scared to not know what's going into those additives so yeah. and 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 luckily because we went to the market the people that we were talking to the likes of yourself came to us and said you know why have you got preservatives in your sausages so we changed straight away and and, and we're now doing preservative free sausages um, all our stuff is, is as clean as we can get it, you might say, um, and and still, you know, easy. We do a, um, a beautiful uh, patty, which is beef and mushroom patty, and it, you know, it's not dear. It's not an expensive food, but it's a yummy food, and it's a beautiful feed. One patty will feed you and maybe two. <laughs> it's big enough to feed two. 
Um, people love the meatballs to put in all their different stuff, the same thing. Um, so, yeah, look, it, we do get the enjoyment of, of talking to the people that are consuming our foods by going to the markets, but we probably would like to encourage people to um, buy online as much as possible and, and get us to bring it to their door. It'd be a better way. Yeah. And as a consumer, I want to make a, the real point to, to the listeners. Your feedback to the producer is makes a, a lot of difference. And as you just mentioned, Brian, you remove preservatives from your sausages after people ask, you know, what, why do you have preservatives here? So don't underestimate your power as a consumer and the power of giving that feedback in terms of influencing um, the, the food and how it's made and, and how it's how it's produced. Um, yeah. Well, the, another uh, feedback that we got, sorry to interrupt, but another no, feedback no, no, we no. got, which is, is fabulous, is uh, quite a lot of the um, health gyms, or you might call them, the people that are doing the, the, the workouts at the gym are obviously getting reasonable nutrient um, you know, uh, advice. So they come to us and they're looking for the likes of liver, you know, raw liver now is apparently consumed by a lot of people for the, the health benefit. And then we also got this request to say, well, can you do a, a healthy mince? You know, so we do a heart, liver, and fat with the bitter meat as a mince, and people are loving that. I mean, it's a simple thing, coming from uh, the more of the uh, the offal than than the uh, the meat, but it's still a fabulous feed. And yeah, we 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 really encourage people to uh, give us feedback, tell us what they think you know is possible for us to give to, to them coming from this product. And can you talk a little bit about processing and where do you, where do you get your animals processed? Do you have control over that process and, and how, how does that all work? Okay. Very quickly. Um, we have to go through a certain system where the, the animals go to a slaughterhouse and we use Gimpy, uh, Nolans at Gimpy and they effectively do the kill and, and, you know, they skin them, they gut them and have them come out of there as a carcass form, that carcass has to go to a butcher. We cannot get that back to, to us because we're not registered as, as you know, fresh meat operators. So it goes to a butcher, and we use a butcher who's fabulous to work with out at Carter's Ridge, at, and he's called um, Ryan Robb at Mary Valley Small Goods. Partnering with Ryan has been really beneficial to get what we want because he's open to doing what we ask of him. And so he then breaks that animal down from a carcass into whatever we ask him to do. We tell him exactly how many sausages or how much mints or how much, you know, large packages for the restaurateurs or whatever. So we can get it broken down however we ask. And he then freezes that for us because we, like I said, aren't registered to operate with fresh foods. So we bring it back to the farm in a, in a cold room trailer and put it directly into our own freezer in order to then distribute to to the clients yeah so um it's it's a good system working with ryan uh rob ryan um to do this whole system yeah and you mentioned the heart mints and, and i encourage people to to consume organs and to eat the animal nose to tail it's 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 an amazing source of nutrients and um particularly heart and liver is some of the most nutrient dense food you can you, you can eat on the planet um, and other things like uh, fat and bones, are you selling or are you making use of those products? Yeah, well, we, we do sell almost everything. The only thing I've struggled to move is the kidney 
Um, and, and kidney has a very strong flavor, so it, it's, um, it's a bit of a challenge. But uh, once again, Josh at, um, at Noosa Cartel is going to have a go at doing a uh, beef and kidney pie um, and see how we come out at the other end of that. And if we can move that, then, yes, we're moving every single part of the beast. Um, um, you know, people will have an oxtail soup. Um, people will have pressed tongue. People will actually eat, you know, straight heart too. But and we do sell heart as a whole. Um, the the likes of Embassy XO, which is uh, James at uh, James Wu at Embassy XO, takes quite a lot of the uh, shin and and flank and those sort of cuts that he puts into his his meals, uh, uh, the Asian meals. So yeah, look, it, it can be used. Bask Bask at Umundi, um, they effectively do almost everything as well and they're really good to work with and he he's you know this time around i think he's taking some spare rib to do a, a meal with spare rib so we we cut it as a um, a meal size length of of um you know bone in and they they make a beautiful meal because stuff against the bone or meat against the bone is normally the sweetest meats um they may well be a little bit tougher but they're the sweetest meats they're beautiful and lots of fat, so lots of flavour. Yeah, really, really nice. Mm. Fantastic. So, yes, we're moving so, most of our product. <laughs> mm, that's great. So we're coming up on an hour now, and, and I want you, um, Brian, to maybe give some advice or, or can do you have a message for maybe farmers who are considering a regenerative approach or considering um, a Naguni-type breed? Can you, can you what, what message would you have for them? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose the biggest thing to do is to understand that if you haven't been anywhere near regenerative style farming is to jump on the likes of what you're doing here, podcasts, uh, where they interview people that have done it already. And I, and I get a lot of joy from listening to podcasts of, of guys that have been there in the industry doing this for longer than I have. Um, the outcomes they've got from it, the joy and, and, um, and, you know, benefits to their country, their people, their community. It, it, it just seems to flow on. And my experience with the regenerative um, style people is they are very sharing. They're very uh, community-minded and particularly conscious of everybody's health, not just their own. Um, farm health comes and becomes better, number one thing. It's immediately you make this change, you will have a better farm. There's no doubt about that. The use of animals that suit your environment. I, 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 you know, I'll press, I'll press for the Nguni in, in what we've got here. It may not be that, that particular animal for your environment, but choose the right animal for your environment. Yes, we chosen direct to the public. So having an animal that eats well was a part, you know, a crucial part of that decision. First one was though, the one that fit, fitted the environment. So Nguni fitted the environment. And I suppose the next thing to, to remember is that we're all here on this, this, this planet to survive and go forward. And if we don't make some major changes, as we've heard many a times on, on you know, our, our mainstream media, is we're in a, a pretty bad path, you know, so we've got to make some changes. And if my little part here is, is sequestering a little bit more carbon and, and, you know, pulling it out of the atmosphere and, and putting it into our soils, a, it helps me. B, it helps the planet. So I'm going to keep doing it, and I would encourage anybody and everybody else to do the same. 
And the third thing probably is that it costs less to run this style of farming than the other style. It, it, it leaves you less exposed to, um, to industry change or, or price change, as you might say. If you're not having to find the money up front with inputs, you've got much more um, depth of strength to go forward and keep farming if you're not putting the money out front with, with inputs. I think my chemical that was going on to my animals was around nearly $4,000 a year. And I've only got 120 odd, you know, maybe up to 150 animals. I just changed that overnight just by changing the breed. You know, there's four grand back in my pocket straight away by having a different breed. And so little, little things make big change, you might say. <laughs> I think that's my biggest message. Yeah. And that's a great message. So thank you very much, Brian. And, and we appreciate what your work, the work you're doing so much. And we appreciate the, the taste and the health, health, um, healthiness of your food. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing, um, place to end it. And yeah, thank, thanks so much. So give, um, the listeners a bit of a handoff as to where they can find you or find your work or where they can buy your beef or how they can interact with you. Okay. I'll, uh, really quickly, Eastwell Farms is our, is our name and you'll find it under eastwellfarms.com.au. Um, and we do have Facebook. We do have um, Insta, I think, as well. I'm not I'm not the runner of the Insta, but we, we have both. And the other thing that we um, are hoping to do is to effectively have more online sales. So going online, if it's not there in a, in a purchasable form, then send us emails, and that's all available through the website. So we're quite happy to talk to people individually and try and accommodate what their particular requirements are. And, um, you know, we do it regularly, but we are going to be saying we're local. So most of the Sunshine Coast is covered by Eastwell Farms and, and happy to, you know, talk to anybody that's local because we don't want to travel our, our produce any further than it has to travel to, to get to good clientele. Um, yeah, I don't know what else I can say. Oh Great. no, I will no. say one more thing. We are we're probably going to open up our farm for you know a farm visit come shop, maybe once a month, if not once every second month or something like that. Because we got really good um, feedback and coverage from the Kalula Farm Trail that we recently had, and and we had a lot of people came on the farm and said how much they enjoy being able to come and see the farmer, talk to us directly. And, uh, and then enjoy our produce. So we're looking that that might be part of our, our going forward, um, uh, function. Fantastic. And I would encourage everyone to meet, um, call up, um, send an email and order beef, order in bulk. The more you buy, the, the, the better price you get and the better your supply. So it's, uh, I think it's a win-win for, for everyone. So thanks very much, Brian, for coming on the show and we'll talk again. There's a lot to talk about. We've we yes. just scratched the surface, yes. but uh, thank you very much. My pleasure, Max, and thank you for, for you know, following us in the, in the whole journey. Great. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. 
I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.